We're going to talk about depravity. And this is not a teaching that I wanted to do. This is depressing. This is heart-wrenching. This is, this is dark stuff. It's not the kind of thing I like to talk about. I would so much rather talk about amazing grace. But it hit me this morning in going back over these notes and thinking back through the passage and praying that the whole point, what makes God's grace so absolutely amazing is that we should be among the depraved. That the depth of the depravity of the human heart, where I should be in light of who He is, Looking at these things, considering these things, thinking through even the depravity, the depraved state, what God will call tonight the deep depravity of Israel. We see in that a God whose whose grace is so magnificent, it is breathtaking to consider. And so I encourage you as we go through and think through all of these things and we look into this deep depravity that you will keep grace on your minds and in your hearts. And that you will remember that in spite of the depravity that we have in our lives, that we came from, in spite of the depravity God was dealing with inside of Israel, His grace is greater, far greater than the messes that we can make. The Hebrew word for depravity is shachath. Shachath. You should say it angrily and hopefully with a little phlegm. It is used roughly 150 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is variously translated depravity, corruption, ruin, decay. And it is the dregs. It's the bottom of the barrel. It is where we should be. It is where we would be if not for the grace of God Almighty, of God our Father, the grace of the God of the Old Testament. As people sometimes misunderstand, same God. Misunderstand that when we talk about God the Father, Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh, we're talking about Yeshua. That God has not changed. That He is absolutely consistent through and through. And the grace of God, as we see given toward His people Israel, the grace of God that is poured out in the Hebrew Scriptures is absolutely amazing. We're not to believe or to see God as some harsh, distant dictator. When you really study the Scriptures, when you look at what He said, what He did, you see a God of incredible love. Why would He take the time to indict Israel like He did in Hosea chapters 6, 7, and 8? We studied last time. His indictment of their treachery. If He didn't care if He was distant, if He was cut off from them, if they were some puny little mortals that He had nothing to do with, then their behavior would not be treacherous to Him. He wouldn't care. But He does care deeply. And so we saw their treachery, a a treachery that led them ultimately into, again, deep depravity. He's going to use that phrase twice in the study tonight, in the Scriptures before us. Only in Hosea does He call it deep depravity. And chapter 9 picks up and begins what you could consider the sentencing phase of that deep depravity. We've looked at the treachery. He's laid it all out. He's made it clear what they've done. And now he begins to sentence them for the treachery that leads to depravity. Beginning chapter 9, verse 1. Hosea 9.1 Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them. 
and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled. For their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. Now some think that this prophecy of Hosea, especially this section, was given, was brought at a harvest festival. That Hosea showed up, as it were, like he was going to Holland Happening. You know, or the Anacortes Arts and Crafts Festival, goes into the middle of the street and starts preaching. And the message that he preaches is dark. And it is about depravity. It's not the kind of thing you can get away with easily because it is offensive to those depraved. Although, honestly, those depraved probably wouldn't think it was referring to them at all. One of the difficult things about teaching something like we're going to go through here on uh, tonight, on a Wednesday night, is that a lot of the people who need to hear this are not going to hear this. I, I kind of make an assumption. If you're here, you kind of know you've come from depravity. You know you need Jesus. Otherwise, you wouldn't be taking the time. But those who don't know, who don't recognize, who don't realize that's a part of depravity. I'm getting ahead of myself. But some believe he shows up and at this harvest festival, because he refers to the threshing floor, to the new wine, to the feasts of the Lord, he he points to all of these things. And the people don't receive him well. Some think perhaps that's what was going on. He's at a festival. The Lord here reveals several things that show us Israel's punishment is in a lot of ways self-inflicted. Remember, the Bible tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. It's not that God's waiting to pounce. It's that your own sin speaks against you. Your own sin cries out against you. And so here, he shows us these self-inflicted wounds of Israel, these things that they have done to themselves, and some of them may sound familiar to you. I call these paradoxes of depravity. Paradoxes of depravity. Well, I'll give you eight or so of them tonight. Paradoxes of depravity, in other words, the depraved mind going into something thinking they're going to get one thing, but getting something completely other. And it's a paradox. And the first one is this, joy that brings sorrow. Joy that brings sorrow. He says in verse 1, look at this again, do not rejoice with exultation like the nations. Exultation like the nations, or translate that, the joy of the world. Joy of the world is very different than joy to the world, as we sometimes sing. Because the joy of the world is based solely on the work of man. The joy that I work for, the joy that I accomplish, the joy that that I, I roll up my sleeves and I make it happen. My joy. The joy that I chase after. The joy of the world. Verse 1 continues on and says, You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. 
The connection here between harlotry and the threshing floor is interesting because the people of Israel actually would bring their idols to the threshing floor to ensure a good harvest. They would sacrifice to their idols there at the threshing floor to honor the idols so that the idols would provide a good harvest. The problem with that is when the harvest came, who gets the glory? And very similarly, in our lives, one sure sign that something is an idol is when it gets all the credit for your harvest. When the good things that come into your life are credited to something, someone, anything other than Jesus, it's idolatrous. And we do it. It might be a company or investment that gets the credit. Oh, yes, thank you, Apple. Or I guess today it's thank you, Google, because they've surpassed Apple in market shares. Could be something going on really good at work. Man, you've hit it. It's happening. It could be another person in your life that you credit with your blessings. It could even be your own work. I cringe a little bit every now and then when we're praying and we say, Oh Lord, bless her because she's a true servant. No. No. Bless her because you're a good God. Oh Lord, may you pour out blessings on him because he's such a faithful tither. No. No. Lord, pour out blessings because you are such a faithful God. When we give the credit anywhere but to the one to whom the credit is due, which is God the Father, we're practicing a form of idolatry. We're honoring the idols instead of the one who truly brings every good thing given. James 1.17 And every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And my problem is I take that literally. It's not really a problem. But I take God at His word. And when He says every good gift given, every good thing comes from above, then i got to assume every good thing comes from above. Every good thing. Which means the thankfulness, the gratitude, the credit continues to go back to the One who is above, the Father of lights, as James writes, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the problem with the joy of the world is it never lasts. The joy of the Lord is varying and is like a shifting shadow. You may be able to grab a little bit of joy for a moment or or a false sense of happiness, but it's going to go away. It's not going to stay. It will not remain. I think the question is, who is the Lord of my harvest? Keep your finger there and turn over to the book of James. James chapter 5. And I would encourage you, as I have had to do, to consider these words in light of your own life and your own earnings. James chapter 5, verse 1. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, let's be clear, you rich is every single one of us in the barn tonight. You rich is everybody living in this country right now. For all the national debt, we live in the richest country on the face of the earth in all history. And the poorest among us is far more wealthy than the poorest in the rest of the world. 
And so we are those who are rich, but he says, Howl, weep for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now that's ironic. Absolutely ironic. And I, you know, he, he's talking, he's talking with conviction to those who need to be convicted. But it's interesting, he's saying, in the last days, these people are storing up treasure. For what? It's not as if it was in the beginning with Adam and we knew we had another six or seven thousand years or however long left, so we can store up a bit because we'll use it. These are the last days. And you're storing up treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is not Sabbath, it's Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And I read you that primarily not to say you're a bunch of filthy rich people. What I meant to say, and what James is saying to us and speaking to our hearts, is the harvest that we look for is not of this world. The harvest we look for is the joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That's the harvest that I'm looking for. That's the one that we are called to rejoice in. And by the way, that's a joy everlasting that will not fade. I've been thinking about these things really in my Christian life for a little over a dozen years now. I've been a Christian a long time. But really focused on and thinking about the coming of Jesus in a pretty intense way for quite a while now. And it's just getting better. I'm not getting bored with the thought. You know? The joy doesn't decrease. It increases. It gets better. Like a good marriage, it just gets better and better and better as it goes. Israel's joy, joy of the world, led to sorrow. Because as verse 2 tells us, the threshing floor is not going to feed them. It says the new wine. That's going to fail them. And they're going to end up eating what we saw in verse 4, mourner's bread. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. Aven lachem. Aven lachem. Bread of wickedness. Or bread of vanity. It's interesting, the word for wickedness, aven, is also the same word for emptiness. So to be wicked is to be empty. And that's what the bread is. That's what's coming. You know, if you want to live wickedly, if you want to eat the bread of wickedness, it's going to be empty. It's going to leave you unfilled. Paradox number two, food that causes starvation. The food of the depraved. In the same way that the joy of the depraved brings about sorrow, so the food of the depraved causes starvation. Their bread, he says in verse 4 at the end of it, their bread will be for themselves alone. Literally, their bread will be for their appetite. And then he says something interesting. It will not enter the house of the Lord. Well, what's that mean? What are you driving at, Lord? Bread for the house of the Lord. What was the bread called in the house of the Lord? It was the showbread. 
the showbread that was set out on the table of showbread there in the holy place. And it was a sanctified bread, a holy bread, a bread set apart unto the Lord and eaten by then the priests of the Lord. Well, their bread's not going to come into the house of the Lord because it's only for them. And bread that is only for us leads to starvation. Bread that is sanctified by the Lord is a different thing. Wine for the drink offering. The wine for the drink offering was godly. But they're drinking the wine for their own appetite. As they're eating the bread for their own appetite. And gang, both of these two things reminded the one who brought them to the house of the Lord of the source of their blessing. If you brought the grain offering to the house of the Lord, you did so recognizing that you had grain in the first place because God gave it to you. And if you brought the drink offering, you brought it recognizing God has provided joy for your house. Show bread, the drink offering, and if I am eating the bread and drinking the wine for the sake of this world and for my own pleasure, I'm going to end up sad and hungry. I've been asked before. In fact, I had one person who was upset about this, thought it was dumb. So why do we bother with a little corner of cracker and a thimbleful of juice for communion? Why aren't we passing around chalices and breaking off big old hunks of bread? That's what we ought to be doing. Hey, the point is not the bread that we're putting in our mouths. The point is what it represents. And the bread represents the bread of life, which I can't get enough of, and yet fills me every time I turn to Him. And the wine reminds me, when I have that little sip on Sunday morning, it's not about filling my belly with grape juice. That little sip reminds me of the wine He promises to drink anew in the coming kingdom. It reminds me of the blood that He poured out so that we could be there with Him in the coming kingdom. The bread, the wine, this brings joy and satisfaction and filling. But the depraved don't see that. They end up with a food that causes starvation. Those who know the Lord, Joel 3.18 says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. And again, that's a harvest worth waiting for. That's a life worth looking forward to. With eyes wide open and not depraved. So what we say, joy that causes sorrow, food that causes starvation... Continue on, verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. And there is only hostility in the house of his God. And they have gone deep in depravity. There's the first time he says it. Deep in depravity, as in the days of Gabeah, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. Alright, let's take these few verses. Ephraim had cast off God. Ephraim was done with the Lord, and they were to the point now where their iniquity was bringing hostility. They're angry with the prophets like Hosea, like Isaiah. Remember Isaiah got sawed in half. That takes a little bit of hostility to bring about something like that. They were acting toward the Lord just like the nations. And you've been in that place, I'm sure, where you start to talk about Jesus or you mention the name of Jesus and people get hostile. 
or angry or don't want to hear that church stuff. This is how bad it was in Israel. It would be like walking into the bridge on a Sunday morning and saying, Hey, God bless you, and someone turning around and going, I don't want to hear that here. But, but aren't we all God's people here? In Israel, God's people didn't want to hear it. God's people were so filled with sin themselves that they were hostile to the Lord and they were just like the nation. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's deep depravity. Deep depravity is to cast off the ways of the Lord for freedom. Paradox number three, it's freedom that lays a snare. Freedom that lays a snare. Freedom that entraps. Freedom that entangles. Freedom that enslaves. He says in verse 8, the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. You're getting caught up in yourself. You're getting caught up in your depravity. And you are not free. Let us shake off his fetters. Let's cast away his cords. And it's not freedom. It's slavery. And note this, the ways of God are so rejected. They say there in, uh, it's in verse 7, halfway through, the prophet is a fool, the inspired man is demented. You know who they're talking about? Hosea. The point is, the people see Hosea, God's man, God's prophet, God's inspired man. The inspired man, inspired could be translated the spiritual man. Here comes this spiritual, godly prophet. The man who went after his his harlot wife and brought her home out of love and faithfulness now comes to the people after showing them an amazing example of forgiveness and grace and speaks truth to them and they say he's a fool. He's got to have dementia. He's whacked. He came into the Holland Happening and started talking about all this stuff. What is wrong with you? Look around, Hosea. It's Harvest Festival. Look at the blessings. Doesn't that prove to you that we have the favor of God? You're an idiot. And so they castigate Hosea. Their sin is so gross, their hostility so great, that God's man comes off like an irrational idiot. Part of the reason I don't like teaching this stuff is I just keep seeing the parallels to our nation right now. And they're so constant. And I feel like, Lord, we talked about this last week. (laughs) We saw this the week before and the week before that. I'm not even drawing the examples because they're so obvious to us. When the godly man, when the righteous person, when the spiritual person says something and is hammered for being a moron, that's depravity. When God sends His Word and a people reject it. They're looking around and saying, we're doing great. Remember I told you when we started Hosea, during this season, at least in the run-up, during uh, the Jeroboam II, they were prosperous in Israel. Things were good, financially speaking, economically speaking. They were dark and depraved spiritually, but economically, things were great. we got no problem. Why are you coming to us with all this negative talk? And so the Word of God And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is rejected as the ravings of lunacy. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I can almost hear the sizzling of the iron against the brain of the depraved. Such that that part of the brain no longer functions. Cannot tell right from wrong. It makes no sense. Peter describes what happens when this kind of mentality permeates a people. Not just individuals who are depraved, but when a people become depraved. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So they cry, freedom from all this religion, you know, freedom from the Bible, freedom from church. And it's slavery. It's a snare. And it leads us to the next paradox. Paradox number four, a pleasure that makes sick. Pleasure that makes sick. Something that the depraved mind looks at and says, that's really good, but it's sickening. The Lord draws a a parallel here to the most vile, perhaps, example in the entire Bible. He says in verse 9, they have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gabeah. The days of Gabeah. What happened in the days of Gabeah? Well, it's a story that begins not unlike Hosea's story. You can read the whole story in Judges 19, verses 12 through 30. Pretty much the whole chapter of Judges 19 tells this story. A Levite had a concubine, had a wife of harlotry, just like Hosea, who played the harlot and left him. And like Hosea, this Levite goes after her to bring her back. That's where the similarity ends. She ends up in the house of her father. The Levite goes to the house of her father, stays there a few days. The father is so glad that he came to get her. (laughs) I guess if I had a daughter who was a harlot and her husband came to get her, I'd want him to come get her too. So he's glad and they're they're eating and they're feasting together and he keeps having him stay on. He stays on a few days, but ultimately says, we got to go home. we got to take back, uh, head back home. So he takes her with him. The Levite does. Now we have the Levite and the concubine heading back home. And en route to their place, they stop in Gabeah for the night. What often would happen in those days was if somebody needed a place to stay, you'd go to the city uh, square, to the center of the town, and you'd kind of wait there and see if someone would come by and offer you a room there in Israel. An old farmer comes in from his field and says, Do you have somewhere to stay for the night? No, we need somewhere to stay. Why don't you come stay at my house? Takes the Levite, the concubine, they go with the old farmer into his house. And not long after that, there's a pounding on the door. And a banging on the windows. And what the Bible calls certain worthless men surround the old farmer's house and they start demanding that he send out the Levites so they can have their way with him. It's a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of a tale. Okay, Send him out. We want to enjoy him. We want pleasure. It's pleasure that makes sick. It gets so bad, finally the Levite, and for whatever reason, I mean, this is in a very depraved time. In fact, the book of Judges is called the time when Israel had no king. The Levite takes his concubine and pushes her out the front door and closes the door. The men brutalize and rape her all night long. 
And when the Levite opens the door in the morning, Judges 19, read the story. It's a nice bedtime story. When he opens the door in the morning, she's lying on the doorstep, dead. So he picks her up, lays her across his donkey, and heads home. When he gets home, Judges 19.29 tells us, he entered his house, he took a knife, and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces. Limb by limb, and he sent her throughout the territory of Israel. One piece of this woman for every tribe of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in verse 30 of Judges 19, it says, All who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. And that, my friends, is how God defines deep depravity. He says, That's how bad this is. This is just like the days of Gabeah. To say that is to say that Israel has now sunk deeper than in that day. In that day where they said, nothing like this has ever happened before. There's nothing worse that could possibly be. And now it's worse. God says that's depravity. When when sexuality is twisted, when human life is trivial, when pleasure is played out brutally, that's when people sink down into deep, deep depravity. He says He's going to remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Verse 10, I found Israel. Now we hear God looking back. The the heart of the Father, the the loving God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Now, we've got to stop right there. Side note, that's how God saw Israel. There's there's love and there's delight in His words. As if you were walking through a desert region, your throat's dry and cracked, you come around a a corner of stones and there miraculously is growing a, a vine filled with sweet grapes. And you just dig in. Or the earliest fig tree in its season, the early figs that you can always eat for sustenance. He says, I saw them that way. The earliest fig tree in its first season, Jesus uses the same figure of speech, (laughs) referring to Israel in the last season. God saw Israel in the first season as a delightful fig tree, and Jesus refers to Israel in the last season as a fig tree as well. You know the passage, Matthew 24-32, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near, right at the door. My fig tree's back. See, that's what God's saying. That's what Jesus is declaring in that wonderful passage. That God originally saw them as the fig tree in the first season, and now here in the last season, they are again sprouting, and we know summer's near. Do I have to even give you the date? May 14th, 1948, when the fig tree began to put forth its branches. The Lord loves Israel, compares them to the, to the early figs, to the grapes in the wilderness. And He continues on saying, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame and they became as detestable as that which they loved. What happened at Baal Peor? Numbers 25 tells that story. It's one of the stories of Balaam. 
Balaam, that self-serving seer. (laughs) That man who actually had prophetic ability, but he was wicked. He was sin-sick himself. He was not a lover of Israel by any means. And he was hired by Moab's huge king, Balak. King Balak was, the Bible tells us, a big man. And he had a huge problem with Israel. So he hires Balaam, I want you to put a curse on him. And you know the story in, in Numbers 23-24, Balaam goes up on a high mountain, he overlooks Israel, and he starts trying to curse him, but every time he opens his mouth, blessing comes out. He can't do it. It's hilarious. It's a great section of Scripture. No, go ahead, the Lord tells Balaam uh, through his donkey. Go ahead. <laughs> you, can, you can go ahead and, uh, and open your mouth all you want. And every word is blessing, 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 blessing. King Balak's there. Curse them! Right, right, I got it. I got a good curse written out here. Blessing, 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 blessing. And he can't curse them? No matter how hard he tries. Well, finally, Balaam figures something out. There's another way. I may not be able to curse them, but there's another way, Balak, that you can take down these people. Peter talks about it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude says in verse 11, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Well, what is that? What's the error of Balaam? Revelation 2.14 explains to us what we can only guess from the book of Numbers. Revelation 2.14 says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, king of the Moabites, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So we learn from John in the Revelation, from Jesus actually in one of the letters to the seven churches, we find out, oh, that's what Balaam did. Balaam goes to King Balak and says, I can't curse him, but you can mess him up. And here's what you do. Get your prettiest Moabite girls and invite them to temple. Invite them to your pagan feasts and your festivals. Lure the sons of Israel with the daughters of Moab and you'll get them. And so the Lord says, He says they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. So what happened there? This is in Numbers 25. Israel began to play the harlot. The sons of Israel began getting together with the daughters of Moab. In fact, it became so bad, Moses and the elders were weeping at the doorway of the tabernacle. Absolutely beside themselves, what do we do? Weeping before the Lord. And as they're weeping, a brazen Israelite man walks right by them with a Moabite girl and takes her into his tent. And they all know what's going on. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, of the priestly line of Aaron, Phineas, has had enough. He jumps up, he grabs his spear, he runs into the tent, and he drives his spear through the two of them. Sin kebab. <laughs> and by the way, God honored Phineas after that and said, your priestly line will not fail. You're going to be a priest perpetually because you saw the depravity and you did not tolerate it. Now listen, I'm not saying grab your spears. <laughs> Can I be clear about that? That's not what we're called to. But when it comes, listen, when it comes to sexual things, I think the church has become dangerously lax in our attitudes and opinions. Dangerously tolerant of something that the Bible makes absolutely clear is deadly serious to the Lord. And it's easy, it's easy these days to point the finger at homosexuality and the depravity there. What about 
heterosexual immorality. It's still sexual immorality. And that would include everything from pornography to affairs to living outside of marriage and any kind of a sexual relationship. It's all sexual immorality. It's all the same bag. And it's amazing. Christians can be living together and going, well, at least we're not homosexual. (laughs) Sexual immorality. It's, It's the same thing. You might ask the question, why do a person's sexual choices matter so much to God? Why would He care? What we're doing in the darkness with the lights out in the back room. Why does this matter to him? Because at the end of verse 10 he says, they became as detestable as that that which they loved. There's a reason this matters to God. Paradox number five, is it? Paradox number five. Surrender that spears the heart. Surrender that spears the heart. What do you mean? I mean giving in to fleshly desire. Just, Just go with it, man. Live and let live. Enjoy yourself. And it spears the heart. Some think that, man, it'll be easier if I just do what the pressure around me is calling me to do. It'll just be easier if I don't have to fight this anymore. If I don't have to try to be righteous, if I just go with the flow, man, I'll surrender and it spears the heart like the spear of Phineas. It's going to kill you. It will drive you through. And it's so obviously taught in our society today and even in the church to give in to feeling. You can't help it. We understand. It's okay. Surrender. It's your parents' fault. You know? When we give in to something or someone, we quite literally give ourselves to that which we love. We surrender and it spears us. We take after the things and the people that we hold dear. We become like those that we love. We take on their characteristics. Whatever we give into, that's the direction that we tend to go. And God loves us too much to watch us go that direction. The more we surrender to the things of earth, the more earthly we're going to be. And it spears the heart. By the way, there is an upside to surrender. There's another kind of surrender. Surrender to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus and guess what happens? You become more and more like Him. The more I surrender to Jesus. See, that's a good surrender. Instead of saying, oh man, it's too tough to do it this way, it's just, Lord, I surrender to You. I'm going to surrender to You rather than surrendering to the sin. I'm going to give in to You. You want me to go this way? All right, Lord, I give up. I'm not going to chase down that sin anymore. I'm just going to follow You. I surrender. I surrender all to Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. And when we do that, we become like Him. And the more we surrender, the more like Jesus we are because we become like that which we love. Jesus said in Luke 6.40, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's a good surrender. But the paradox of depravity, number five, is surrender to sin spears the heart. Verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. By the way, did you notice we've been covering a lot of word pictures here. Back in verse 4, mourner's bread. In verse 10, grapes in the wilderness, fig trees. And now in verse 11, they're going to fly away like a bird. Off they go. But then watch this. He says, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them when I depart 
when I depart from them, that's the source of the greatest woe. When God withdraws, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Hosea, this we think is inserted by Hosea. Then he cries out, he's hearing about this judgment, he's looking at this depravity, and he interjects, give them, O Lord, is there something you can give them? And his response, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Paradox number six, a seed that produces sterility. A seed that produces sterility. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if you bring up children, guess what? They're going to be slaughtered. A seed that produces sterility. Remember the covenant promise that God made to Abraham? All the way back in Genesis 17, verse 5, He said, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, literally your zira in Hebrew, your seed. After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. But now, after just, what? About 1,500 years. Now the seed of Abraham has come all the way down to the point where that seed is becoming sterile. Where it's not producing fruitful children for the Lord any longer. The children's hearts are speared through. They're they're filled with sick pleasure. Their behavior is a snare. They are in a place of starvation and sorrow. They don't realize it, but that's where depravity has brought them. It's all the paradoxical outcome of corruption. Verse 15, all their evil is at Gilgal. Remember Gilgal was the home to the school of the prophets, but now is the home of massive idolatry in Israel. Indeed, I came to hate them there. When God who is love hates, you know that you're in a place of deep depravity. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. And it's ironic, I'm going to drive them out. He does. I'm going to love them no more. He can't help it. He keeps loving them. He just keeps loving them. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Again, the seed that becomes sterile. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away, Hosea says, because they have not listened to Him and they will be wanderers among the nations. And that's exactly what they've been for almost 2,000 2000 years now. Wanderers among the nations. And the latest wandering is coming right out of the Ukraine. I told you last week it was France. It's also the Ukraine. Obviously, with everything happening in the Ukraine right now, Ukrainian Jews are fearing for their lives as they're seeing the Holocaust writing on the wall and they're fleeing back to Israel. But they've been wanderers from the nations exactly as the prophet said. But understand this, and maybe it's tough to accept, but God says, I will slay the precious ones of the womb. Why? 
Why would God say that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's the result. It will be the result of the Assyrian assault. The Assyrians will have no use for babies, for kids. They just get in the way. Maybe some of the first to go in the brutality of the Assyrians. So the little ones truly would be slayed. The pregnant women driven through. And so when God says this, He is speaking prophetically, this is going to take place, this is going to happen. But the prophetic word that comes is so harsh because Baal and Ashtoreth were worshipped by the Israelites for their fertility. That's what it was all about. Ashtoreth was that many-breasted goddess of fertility. And the Israelites got drawn into that. The men got drawn into it because of temple prostitution. And the women got drawn into it because they wanted kids. And everybody was following this way. And God says, you know what? There's only one God of the womb. It's only one God who grants life. Just one. I love how Job describes it. Job chapter 10, verse 10. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? And clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. What a beautiful description of what happens in the womb. But, but see, Job gets it. Job, who was a contemporary of Abraham, so 4,000 years ago, while today people are still trying to figure out, when does life begin? Job knew. It began when I was poured out like milk. It began when suddenly something happened. Sperm meets egg and curdling. <laughs> like cheese. And people say, oh, it's just a blob of tissue at that point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's a work of God. Because He is the God of the womb. He is the giver, the bringer of life. And that's why, by the way, abortion is such an affront to God. Because regardless of when I think, or you think, or science tries to tell us life happens, He's the God of the womb. He's at work from the first spark. Psalm 139.13 You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. And we have no right to interfere with, to violate or destroy His creative work at any stage in the process of life. At any stage. Whether it's milk, cheese, bones, sinew, doesn't matter. When God is at work creating life, we need to keep out of it. And let life happen. But in the depraved mind, yeah, the seed that causes sterility. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. That word luxuriant is best, uh, it's best translated in the King James Version. It's empty. Empty. It's not luxuriant. The word is baka in the Hebrew, and baka means empty. And there's emptiness in their fruitfulness because the fruit is only for themselves. He produces fruit for himself. It's my fruit. Not yours, it's mine. It's for me. And so there's selfishness inherent here, and it's an emptiness. And verse 2 going on, or at verse 1 continuing, the more his fruit, the more altars he made. Well, why is he making more altars? Because he's fruitful, because he's given the credit to the idols. As we were talking about before, he is not crediting God. The more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. 
Hey, we're productive, we're fruitful. We need another temple to Ashtoreth. We need another pole to worship her, another temple for Baal. Their heart is faithless, verse 2. And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. And surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? Well, they speak words, mere words. With worthless oaths, they make covenants. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. What a description. There's another word picture for you from Hosea. Poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. That's what happens when the good plants that are supposed to be running along those furrows die out. When good fruit no longer inhabits the furrows of the field, poisonous weeds take over. I know this. I have a backyard. And the poisonous weeds love to come. It's so interesting to me. I've learned over the years in in mowing that back part behind my house. Get out there on that little ride-on mower, put on my 70s music, and I'm just good to go. And riding around in there, sometimes it's worship music, just for those of you who thought more highly of me than that. And I would ride, you know, early in the spring season, I love to mow the first couple or three times. Because it's sweet. It smells so good. You know that sweet grass smell? You get a little later in the season in the weeds, now you're mowing down weeds, and it's nasty. That smell coming up, ooh, what is that? Poisonous weeds. Because when the good is taken away, the bad's going to flood right in there. And so paradox number seven, note this, it may sound a little weird, but paradox number seven, objectivity that yields to subjectivity. Objectivity that yields to subjectivity. Listen to what he says. The judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Their judgment, their discernment, literally their justice has become like poisonous weeds in a place where there should be fruit, where there should be goodness, where there should be objectivity. You know where you get objectivity when it comes to truth? The Word of God. Objective truth. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. It is objectively true. You want to know how to deal with something? Go to the Word. You're going to get objective truth. And what's happened in our court system in America is exactly what had happened in Israel. And that is that the objective discernment of God's law was being sidestepped by subjective judgment of biased judges. What were they doing? Legislating from the bench. Changing law. Rather than reading the law as it is written, the Word of God, the judges in Israel were bringing about injustice because they were being subjective. Well, I'm not sure I see it that way. I know what Torah says, but I'm not, I've got a different opinion. We're going to try this out. And so objectivity in the depraved mind becomes more and more subjective. And it's poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. I've told you before, Beth-Avon or Beth-Avon is house of vanity. It's not a real place. Beth-Avon, he's talking about Bethel, where one of the two golden calves of Jeroboam was. And that's what he's saying. They're going to fear for the calf of Bethel. For the calf of the house of vanity. They're going to mourn for it going on. 
And its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. Assyria comes down, they're going to take off the golden calf. Of course they would, it's gold. They're going to take it from there, they're going to take the one from Dan. And the people, God says, the people are going to mourn over that. Where's your discernment? Verse 6, the thing itself, speaking of the golden calf, will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jareb. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel, note this, Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Why? Because objective justice became subjective. When the absolutes of God's Word are replaced with human subjectivity, it's depravity. When party lines outrank practical truth, it's depravity. When justice gives way to bias. And this is happening in Israel. Keep your finger there. Jump back over to James. I'm convinced that James was reading through Hosea when he wrote his book. I just keep seeing parallels. James chapter 3, verse 13. Because James makes this comment. And by the way, don't, don't write that down as authoritative. I, I, I really don't know. But I just found a lot of parallels tonight. James chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Who is wise? Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Selfish ambition. You know, that's one of the biggest problems in our government today. It's not about being a public servant. It's about keeping my place in Congress. Selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and note this, good fruits. See, good fruits grow in the furrows of the field where it's objective, where you deal with absolute truth. Unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, how do I know how to make peace? You're in the Word of God. You have the objective truth of the Word. By the way, Jesus said the Word is the seed. The seed is the Word in the parable of the sower. sower goes out to sow seed and the seed is the Word of God. And as the Word is sown into the furrows of the field, into the life of a nation, into the lives of the people, the furrows are filled with good fruit, not poisonous weeds. The poisonous weeds are subjectivity. And again, a sure sign of depravity. Back in Hosea chapter 10, verse 7. He continues, he says, Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. You could put an S after waters because it's the word mayim, it's plural, it's talking about moving waters. And so the the picture there is one of a a stick or a twig or a splinter um, being just swept away and caught up in the current. That's what's going to happen to Ephraim, he says. Swept away. Verse 8. Also, the high places of Aven, Aven again meaning sin or vanity, the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. (laughs) Some of you have seen Tel Dan. 
Tel Dan in the north of Israel, where the altar that once housed the golden calf of Jeroboam still stands, the stone altar. You know what's all over that area? Thorns and thistles. Exactly as the word says. Thorns will be on their altars. And note this, verse 8 continuing, Then they will say to the mountains, Cover us! And to the hills, Fall on us! Paradox number 8. Protection that caves to destruction. Protection that is actually or that becomes destruction. This is a dual prophecy here where they cry out to the hills cover us, to the mountains cover us, the hills fall on us. Hey, guess what? Mountains and hills are a good protection for a nation. Part of the reason why Israel wants to maintain the Golan Heights right now is protection. You've got a whole mountain ridge, the mountains of Israel that run on the other side, on the eastern shores of the Jordan. And you need that to make this a protectable, defensible place. Mountains and hills should be a protection, but instead, the depravity is so bad, they're calling on the mountains and the hills to destroy them. Fall on us! Cover us! A dual prophecy. It was spoken of Israel then, because things would be so bad, they'd be saying, wipe us out, don't let us be taken into captivity. But it also speaks of a Christ-rejecting world in the very near, I believe, future. And Jesus was the first to point this out. On His way to the cross, as He's dragging the cross beam along, the women are weeping for Him. He turns Luke 23-28 and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus quotes Hosea on the way to the cross. And then Jesus said, If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? In other words, if they do these things while I'm here, what do you think they're going to do when I'm gone? How bad do you think it will be then? But he quotes Hosea, the time is coming, the days are coming when they're going to say to the mountains, fall on us. They will say to the hills, cover us. And we know when that is. Just before the midpoint of the tribulation, at the end of the first three and a half years, at the end of Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, John writes, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And by the way, for those who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, but they think that three and a half years in will be raptured then because it's only the last three and a half years where the wrath of God is poured out, remember that verse because the people on earth very seriously recognize that the first three and a half years have been the wrath of the Lamb. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, We are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And that's one of a number of reasons why I believe that we will be caught up before the entire seven-year tribulation, a pre-tribulation rapture. Verse 9. From the days of Gabeah, there it is again, Judges 19. I won't go over the story, you heard it. From the days of Gabeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. That is an indictment. They are standing in that sin. They are wallowing in that sin. They are surrounded by that sin. That This is Israel now, God is saying. Just as the days of Gibeah. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? 
and it would. The Assyrians would wipe them out in Gabeah. When it is my desire, I will chastise them, and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Double guilt. What is a double guilt? What does he mean? Some point to Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, where the Lord says, For my people have committed two evils. Two evils, a double guilt. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And there's an important truth here about sin and guilt. There is no such thing as a singular sin. And there's no such thing as singular guilt. Every sin, every guilt is double. Why? Because every sin is cutting two ways. It forsakes God and it breaks self. When I sin against another person, I'm hurting them and I'm forsaking God. It's a double guilt. Sin always cuts two ways. And in the case of the broken cisterns, God is the fountain of living waters. Trust Him for living waters. They didn't trust Him. That's guilt number one. And guilt number two, they're hewing out cisterns that would break. So they're acting in their guilt. Double guilt. But I should mention there's another way of translating this. And it's the way the King James translates it. In the King James Version, verse 10, instead of when they are bound for their double guilt, it says when they are bound or when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. In their two furrows. Paradox number 9. This is the last one. Paradox number 9. I think it is. I might come up with another one. Furrows that require a heavy sledge. Furrows that require a heavy sledge, it's a paradox because a furrow in the farmer's field should be soft, rich earth ready to receive the seed. It should be turned, tilled, ready to go. That's what a farmer's furrow... And when you go through the Skagit Valley, the furrows are the fields that are ready to be planted. That's what it should be. The paradox is in the life that is depraved is is the furrow requires a heavy sledge. A heavy sledge to go through and, and break it up. They are forced, in other words, to plow in furrows that are hardened rather than to enjoy planting in soft soil. Look at verse 11. It, it continues and it's explained. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will cover over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. And note this, Jacob will harrow for himself. We were just talking about this at prayer. Jacob is Israel's previous name. Jacob is the name of the heel catcher, the liar, the schemer, the sinner. Israel is the name God gave him. But here Israel has gone so far from God, God is saying, you're back to Jacob. So he's going to call you Jacob again to deal with all the people, both Ephraim, northern Israel, and Judah, southern Israel, all together. Notice that I will harness Ephraim and Judah will plow Jacob, all Jacob, will harrow for himself. I had to look up the word harrow. What does that mean? A harrow in the early English is a cultivating sledge. A heavy sled set with spikes on a large wooden wheel that would be dragged by a beast of burden for the purpose of breaking up the soil. Threshing, on the other hand, and these are two important words for the passage, threshing was easy compared to harrowing. Because threshing, you'd, put a, you'd hook up a heifer and the heifer would pull a real light threshing sled over plowed corn. 
And in pulling the threshing sledges to thresh the corn, it's easy. It's easy work. The heifers liked it. In fact, the heifers would do that unmuzzled so they could nibble at corn as they're walking along doing their job. It's work, but it's good work. And they're being fed, and it's not hard. And God offered that to Israel originally. Hey, yoke up to me. We've got some work to do here in the land, but it's going to be joyful. It's going to be good. And you're going to be well fed. Israel didn't want it. So God said, all right, then I will hook you up to the plow and you're going to be harrowing. And truly, Israel was in for a harrowing future. We use that word today, harrowing, it means tormented and it works both ways. They would harrow like pulling this heavy sledge over fallow, untilled ground, trying to break up the ground and the rocks, pulling that heavy thing, and they would be tormented by it. And we have the entire history of Israel to prove this true. But understand, it was not what God wanted. God wanted Israel to have work, but work that was, again, a joy. Life that was a harvest of fruitfulness. Land that was fruitful and beautiful. But instead, depravity comes along and always ends up with a hard row to hoe. You can either be threshing for the Lord or harrowing. But here's some grace. Even now, though Hosea prophesied on the eve of their destruction, Israel is about to be wiped out, even now, God offers an out. Look at verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. That's His heart. In all this depravity, He still says, come on back. For all of the sexual sin, Hosea is still calling Gomer home. God is still saying to His harlot people, please come back to Me. Verse 13 You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalman, probably Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, destroyed Bet Arbel in the day of battle when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Mount Arbel is a beautiful place up above the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Mount Arbel is this great ridge and and it's the overlook of of Lake Kinneret of the the Sea of Galilee is is marvelous. And this may be referring to that Arbel. There's a lot of history that happened in the honeycombed caves that are on the front of of that mountain. A lot of Israel's people over the years hid out there. In fact, that's how Herod made a name for himself was he had some rebellious Galilean fishermen hiding out in those caves and he figured out a way to smoke them out and kill them. So Rome said, Herod, Herod, he's our guy. A lot of things happened there. The thing about this particular reference, I believe it would have made all kinds of sense to the people in Hosea's day. It would have been relevant. It would have been like front page news. They would know what he's talking about when he said, Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And it may have some reference to mothers and children and families hiding out there, being pulled out and dashed on the rocks below. But we don't know historically. And so we cannot say with assurance other than it's here, God uses it as an example. 
And finally, verse 15, he says, Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. And he was. Assyria came and overnight, Hoshea, the king of Israel, was taken into captivity where he would die. Paradoxes of depravity. I've given you several of them tonight. There are several more. In fact, there are probably more in these couple of chapters that we could find if we wanted to plumb for them. Paradoxes of depravity. I don't want to end there. So let me go back to verse 12 and read one more time four sweet commands of righteousness. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. How can we work that out in our lives and really think that through come back Sunday morning and we're going to talk about that let's stand up together Father the contrast between depravity and righteousness is amazing it's extreme I'm not sure, Lord, exactly how you desire, how your spirit desires to apply all these things to us. But I pray, Father, from all of it, that if nothing else, to a person, we will walk out of here desiring to sow to righteousness. Desiring to be those who plant in the rich soil. That our hearts, Father, would remain rich and soft and available to the seed of the Word as it gets planted in the furrows of our hearts, that it would grow good fruit. But I pray, Father, that Your Spirit will make these things practical and applicable. And that as we go away from here tonight and tomorrow and we're thinking about these things and perhaps looking back at these, at these verses, that You would speak directly to each of us You know every field represented here. You know where we are. You know what ground needs to be broken up. You know what ground is waiting for good seed. You know us, Father. And I pray in Your knowledge of us and in Your great grace that You will show us the path of righteousness and we might choose to walk it. We stand before You, Lord, as Your children acknowledging your glory, your greatness, and your grace over us. In Jesus' name, amen.